Part One, Chapter One of Tom Brown's School Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Icy Jumbo. Tom Brown's School Days by Thomas Hughes. Part One, Chapter One The Brown Family. I'm the poet of White Horse Vale, sir, with liberal notions under my cap. Ballad. The Browns have become illustrious by the pen of Thackeray and the pencil of Doyle, within the memory of the young gentlemen who are now matriculating at the universities. Notwithstanding the well-merited but late fame which has now fallen upon them, any one at all acquainted with the family must feel that much has yet to be written and said before the British nation will be properly sensible of how much its greatness owes to the Browns. For centuries, in their quiet, dogged, homespun way, they have been subduing the earth in most English counties, and leaving their mark in American forests and Australian uplands. Wherever the fleets and armies of England have won renown, there stalwart sons of the Browns have done yeoman's work. With the yew bow and clothyard shaft at Crecy and Agincourt, with the brown bill and pike under the brave Lord Willoughby, with culverin and demi-culverin against Spaniards and Dutchmen, with hand-grenade and sabre and musket and bayonet under Rodney and St. Vincent, Wolfe and Moore, Nelson and Wellington, they have carried their lives in their hands, getting hard knocks and hard work in plenty, which was on the whole what they looked for, and the best thing for them, and little praise or pudding, which indeed they, and most of us, are better without. Talbots and Stanleys, St. Moors and such-like folk, have led armies and made laws time out of mind, but those noble families would be somewhat astounded, if the accounts ever came to be fairly taken, to find how small their work for England has been by the side of that of the Browns. These latter, indeed, have, until the present generation, rarely been sung by poet or chronicled by sage. They have wanted their sesavates, having been too solid to rise to the top by themselves, and not having been largely gifted with the talent of catching hold of, and holding on tight to, whatever good things happened to be going the foundation of the fortunes of so many noble families. But the world goes on its way, and the wheel turns, and the wrongs of the Browns, like other wrongs, seem in a fair way to get righted. And this present writer, having for many years of his life been a devout Brown worshipper, and, moreover, having the honour of being nearly connected with an eminently respectable branch of the great Brown family, is anxious, so far as in him lies, to help the wheel over and throw his stone onto the pile. However, gentle reader, or simple reader, whichever you may be, lest you should be led to waste your precious time upon these pages, I make so bold as at once to tell you the sort of folk you'll have to meet and put up with, if you and I are to jog on comfortably together. You shall hear at once what sort of folk the Browns are, at least my branch of them. And then, if you don't like the sort, why, cut the concern at once, and let you and I cry quits before either of us can grumble at the other. In the first place, the Browns are a fighting family. 
One may question their wisdom, or wit, or beauty, but about their fight there can be no question. Wherever hard knocks of any kind, visible or invisible, are going, there the brown who is nearest must shove in his carcass, and these carcasses, for the most part, answer very well to the characteristic propensity. They are a square-headed and snake-necked generation, broad in the shoulder, deep in the chest, and thin in the flank, carrying no lumber. Then, for clanship, they are as bad as highlanders. It is amazing the belief they have in one another. With them there is nothing like the Browns, to the third and fourth generation. Blood is thicker than water, is one of their pet sayings. They can't be happy unless they are always meeting one another. Never were such people for family gatherings, which, were you a stranger, or sensitive, you might think had better not have been gathered together. For, during the whole time of their being together, they luxuriate in telling one another their minds on whatever subject turns up, and their minds are wonderfully antagonistic, and all their opinions are downright beliefs. Till you've been among them some time, and understand them, you can't think but they are quarrelling. Not a bit of it. They love and respect one another ten times the more after a good set family arguing bout, and go back, one to his curacy, another to his chambers, and another to his regiment, freshened for work, and more than ever convinced that the Browns are the height of company. This family training, too, combined with their turn for combativeness, makes them eminently quixotic. They can't let anything alone which they think going wrong. They must speak their mind about it, annoying all easy-going folk, and spend their time and money in having a tinker at it, however hopeless the job. It is an impossibility to a brown to leave the most disreputable lame dog on the other side of a stile. Most other folk get tired of such work. The old browns, with red faces, white whiskers and bald heads, go on believing and fighting to a green old age. They have always a crotchet going, till the old man with the scythe reaps and garners them away for troublesome old boys as they are. And the most provoking thing is that no failures knock them up, or make them hold their hands, or think you, or me, or other sane people in the right. Failures slide off them like July rain off a duck's back feathers. Jem and his whole family turn out bad, and cheat them one week, and the next they are doing the same thing for Jack, and when he goes to the treadmill, and his wife and children to the workhouse, they will be on the lookout for Bill to take his place. However, it is time for us to get from the general to the particular. So, leaving the great army of Browns, who are scattered over the whole empire on which the sun never sets, and whose general diffusion I take to be the chief cause of that empire's stability, let us at once fix our attention upon the small nest of Browns in which our hero was hatched, and which dwelt in that portion of the royal county of Berks, which is called the Vale of the White Horse. Most of you have probably travelled down the Great Western Railway as far as Swindon. Those of you who did so with their eyes open have been aware, soon after leaving the Didcot station, of a fine range of chalk hills running parallel with the railway on the left-hand side as you go down, and distant some two or three miles more or less from the line, the highest point in the range is the White Horse Hill, which you come in front of just before you stop at the Shrivenham station. If you love English scenery, and have a few hours to spare, 
You can't do better the next time you pass than stop at the Farringdon Road or Shrivenham Station and make your way to that highest point. And those who care for the vague old stories that haunt countrysides all about England will not, if they are wise, be content with only a few hours' stay. For, glorious as the view is, the neighbourhood is yet more interesting for its relics of bygone times. I only know two English neighbourhoods thoroughly, and in each, within a circle of five miles, there is enough of interest and beauty to last any reasonable man his life. I believe this to be the case almost throughout the country, but each has a special attraction, and none can be richer than the one I am speaking of, and going to introduce you to very particularly, for on this subject I must be prosy, so those that don't care for England in any detail may skip the chapter. Oh, young England, young England, you who are born into these racing railroad times, when there's a great exhibition, or some monster sight every year, and you can get over a couple of thousand miles of ground for three pound ten in a five weeks holiday, why don't you know more of your own birthplaces? You're all in the ends of the earth, it seems to me, as soon as you get your necks out of the educational collar, for midsummer holidays, long vacations or what not, going round Ireland with a return ticket in a fortnight, dropping your copies of Tennyson on the tops of Swiss mountains, or pulling down the Danube in Oxford racing boats. And when you get home for a quiet fortnight, you turn the steam off, and lie on your backs in the paternal garden, surrounded by the last batch of books from Mudie's library, and half bored to death. Well, well, I know it has its good side. You all patter French, more or less, and perhaps German. You have seen men and cities, no doubt, and have your opinions, such as they are, about schools of painting, high art, and all that. Have seen the pictures of Dresden and the Louvre, and know the taste of sauerkraut. All I say is, you don't know your own lanes and woods and fields. Though you may be choke-full of science, not one in twenty of you knows where to find the wood-sorrel or bee-orchis which grow in the next wood, or on the down three miles off, or what the bog-bean and wood-sage are good for. And as for the country legends, the stories of the old gable-ended farmhouses, the place where the last skirmish was fought in the civil wars, where the parish butts stood, where the last highwayman turned to bay, where the last ghost was laid by the parson, there gone out of date altogether. Now, in my time, when we got home by the old coach, which put us down at the crossroads with our boxes the first day of the holidays, and had been driven off by the family coachman singing Dulce Domum at the top of our voices, there we were, fixtures, till Black Monday came round. We had to cut out our own amusements within a walk or a ride of home, and so we got to know all the country folk and their ways and songs and stories by heart, and went over the fields and woods and hills again and again, till we made friends of them all. We were Berkshire, or Gloucestershire, or Yorkshire boys, and your young cosmopolites, belonging to all countries and no countries. No doubt it's all right. I dare say it is. This is the day of large views and glorious humanity and all that, but I wish backsword play hadn't gone out in the Vale of the White Horse, and that that confounded Great Western hadn't carried away Alfred's Hill to make an embankment. But to return to the said Vale of the White Horse, the country in which the first scenes of this true and interesting story are laid. As I said, 
The Great Western now runs right through it, and it is a land of large rich pastures bounded by ox fences and covered with fine hedgerow timber, with here and there a nice little gorse or spinney, where abideth poor Charlie, having no other cover to which to betake himself for miles and miles when pushed out some fine November morning by the old Berkshire. Those who have been there, and well mounted, only know how he and the staunch little pack who dash after him, heads high and sterns low, with a breast-high scent, can consume the ground at such times. There being little ploughland and few woods, the vale is only an average sporting country, except for hunting. The villages are straggling, queer, old-fashioned places, the houses being dropped down without the least regularity, in nooks and out-of-the-way corners, by the sides of shadowy lanes and footpaths, each with its patch of garden. They are built chiefly of good grey stone, and thatched, though I see that within the last year or two the red-brick cottages are multiplying, for the Vale is beginning to manufacture largely both bricks and tiles. There are lots of waste ground by the side of the roads in every village, amounting often to village greens, where feed the pigs and ganders of the people, and these roads are old-fashioned, homely roads, very dirty and badly made, and hardly endurable in winter, but still pleasant jog-trot roads running through the great pasture-lands, dotted here and there with little clumps of thorns, where the sleek kine are feeding, with no fence on either side of them, and a gate at the end of each field, which makes you get out of your gig, if you keep one, and gives you a chance of looking about you every quarter of a mile. One of the moralists whom we sat under in our youth, was it the great Richard Swiveller, or Mr. Stiggins, says, We are born in a vale, and must take the consequences of being found in such a situation. These consequences I, for one, am ready to encounter. I pity people who weren't born in a vale. I don't mean a flat country, but a vale, that is, a flat country bounded by hills. The having your hill always in view, if you choose to turn towards him, that's the essence of a vale. There he is, for ever in the distance, your friend and companion. You never lose him as you do in hilly districts. And then what a hill is the White Horse Hill! There it stands, right up above all the rest, nine hundred feet above the sea, and the boldest, bravest shape for a chalk hill that you ever saw. Let us go up to the top of him, and see what is to be found there. Ay, you may well wonder and think it odd you never heard of this before, but wonder or not, as you please, there are hundreds of such things lying about England, which wiser folk than you know nothing of, and care nothing for. Yes, it's a magnificent Roman camp, and no mistake, with gates and ditch and mounds, all as complete as it was twenty years after the strong old rogues left it. Here, right up on the highest point, from which they say you can see eleven counties, they trenched round all the table-land, some twelve or fourteen acres, as was their custom, for they couldn't bear anybody to overlook them, and made their eerie. The ground falls away rapidly on all sides. Was there ever such turf in the whole world? You sink up to your ankles at every step, and yet the spring of it is delicious. There is always a breeze in the camp, as it is called, and here it lies, just as the Romans left it, except that cairn on the east side, left by Her Majesty's corps of sappers and miners the other day, when they and the engineer officer had finished their sojourn there and their surveys for the ordnance map of Berkshire. 
It is altogether a place that you won't forget, a place to open a man's soul and make him prophesy as he looks down on that great veil spread out as the garden of the Lord before him, and wave on wave of the mysterious downs behind, and to the right and left the chalk hills running away into the distance, along which he can trace for miles the old Roman road, the ridgeway, the rudge as the country folk call it, keeping straight along the highest back of the hills, such a place as Balak brought Balaam to, and told him to prophesy against the people in the valley beneath. And he could not, neither shall you, for they are a people of the Lord who abide there. And now we leave the camp, and descend towards the west, and we are on the Ashdown. We are treading on heroes. It is sacred ground for Englishmen, more sacred than all but one or two fields where their bones lie whitening. For this is the actual place where our Alfred won his great battle, the Battle of Ashdown, I Skendum in the Chroniclers, which broke the Danish power and made England a Christian land. The Danes held the camp and the slope where we are standing, the whole crown of the hill, in fact. The heathen had beforehand seized the higher ground, as old Assa says, having wasted everything behind them from London, and being just ready to burst down on the fair vale, Alfred's own birthplace and heritage. And up the heights came the Saxons, as they did at the Alma. The Christians led up their line from the lower ground. There stood also on that same spot a single thorn-tree, marvellous stumpy, which we ourselves with our very own eyes have seen. Bless the old chronicler! Does he think nobody ever saw the single thorn-tree but himself? Why, there it stands to this very day, just on the edge of the slope, and I saw it not three weeks since, an old single thorn-tree, marvellous stumpy. At least, if it isn't the same tree it ought to have been, for it's just in the same place where the battle must have been won or lost, around which, as I was saying, the two lines of foemen came together in battle, with a huge shout, and in this place one of the two kings of the heathen and five of his earls fell down and died, and many thousands of the heathen side in the same place. Footnote. Pagani editiorem jocem preoccupaverant. Christiani ab inferiore loco aciem dirigebant. Erat quoque in eodem loco unica spinosa arbo, brevis ad modum quam nos ipsi nostris propriis oculis vidimus. Circa quam ergo hostiles inter seacies, cum ingenti clamore hostiliter conveniunt. Quo in loco alter de duobus paganorem regibus et quinque comites occisi occuberunt, et multa milia paganae partis in eodem loco. Cecidit, Illic ergo boixgeg rex, et sidroc ille senex comes, et sidroc junior comes, et obsbern comes, etc. Annales rerum gestarum Alfredi Magni, auctore Asserio, recensuit Franciscus Wise, Oxford, 1722, page 23. End of footnote. After which crowning mercy, the pious king, that there might never be wanting a sign and a memorial to the countryside, carved out on the northern side of the chalk hill, under the camp where it is almost precipitous, the great Saxon white horse, 
which he who will may see from the railway, and which gives its name to the vale, over which it has looked these thousand years and more. Right down below the white horse is a curious deep and broad gully, called the manger, into one side of which the hills fall with a series of the most lovely sweeping curves, known as the giant stairs. They are not a bit like stairs, but I never saw anything like them anywhere else, with their short green turf and tender bluebells, and gossamer and thistledown gleaming in the sun, and the sheep paths running along their sides like ruled lines. The other side of the manger is formed by the dragon's hill, a curious little round self-confident fellow, thrown forward from the range, utterly unlike everything round him. On this hill some deliverer of mankind, St. George the country folk used to tell me, killed a dragon. Whether it were St. George I cannot say, but surely a dragon was killed there, for you may see the marks yet where his blood ran down, and more, by token, the place where it ran down is the easiest way up the hillside. Passing along the ridgeway to the west for about a mile, we come to a little clump of young beech and firs, with a growth of thorn and privet underwood. Here you may find nests of the strong down partridge and peewit, but take care that the keeper isn't down upon you, and in the middle of it is an old cromlech, a huge flat stone raised on seven or eight others, and led up to by a path, with large single stones set up on each side. This is Wayland Smith's cave, a piece of classic fame now, but as Sir Walter has touched it, I may as well let it alone, and refer you to Kenilworth for the legend. The thick deep wood which you see in the hollow, about a mile off, surrounds Ashdown Park, built by Inigo Jones. Four broad alleys are cut through the wood from circumference to centre, and each leads to one face of the house. The mystery of the downs hangs about house and wood, as they stand there alone, so unlike all around, with the green slopes studded with great stones just about this part, stretching away on all sides. It was a wise Lord Craven, I think, who pitched his tent there. Passing along the ridgeway to the east, we soon come to cultivated land. The downs, strictly so called, are no more. Lincolnshire farmers have been imported, and the long, fresh slopes are sheep-walks no more, but grow famous turnips and barley. One of these improvers lives over there at the Seven Barrows Farm, another mystery of the great downs. There are the barrows still, solemn and silent, like ships in the calm sea, the sepulchres of some sons of men. But of whom? It is three miles from the white horse, too far for the slain of Ashdown to be buried there. Who shall say what heroes are waiting there? But we must get down into the vale again, and so away by the great western railway to town, for time and the printer's devil press, and it is a terrible long and slippery descent, and a shocking bad road. At the bottom, however, there is a pleasant public, whereat we must really take a modest quencher, for the down air is provocative of thirst. So we pull up under an old oak which stands before the door. What is the name of your hill, landlord? Blowingstone Hill, sir, to be sure. Reader, Stoim? Author, Stone, stupid, the blowing stone. And of your house, I can't make out the sign. Blowingstone, sir, says the landlord, pouring out his old ale from a Toby Philpot jug, with a melodious crash into the long-necked glass. 
"'What queer names!' say we, sighing at the end of our draught, and holding out the glass to be replenished. "'Bean't queer at all, sir, as I can see, sir,' says mine host, handing back our glass, "'seeing as this here is the blowing stone itself,' putting his hand on a square lump of stone, some three feet and a half high, perforated with two or three queer holes, like petrified antediluvian rat-holes, which lies there close under the oak, under our very nose. We are more than ever puzzled, and drink our second glass of ale, wondering what will come next. "'Like to hear un, sir?' says mine host, setting down Toby Philpot on the tray, and resting both hands on the stwun. We are ready for anything, and he, without waiting for a reply, applies his mouth to one of the rat-holes. Something must come out of it, if he doesn't burst. "'Good heavens! I hope he has no apoplectic tendencies.' "'Yes, here it comes, sure enough, a gruesome sound between a moan and a roar, and spreads itself away over the valley, and up the hillside, and into the woods at the back of the house. A ghost-like, awful voice.' "'Umdu say, sir,' says mine host, rising purple-faced, while the moan is still coming out of the stwun. "'As they in old times used to warn the countryside by blowing the stwun when the enemy was a-coming.' and as our folks could make an ear then for seven mile round. Leastways, so I've heard lawyer Smith say, and he knows a smart sight about them old times. We can hardly swallow lawyer Smith's seven miles, but could the blowing of the stone have been a summons, a sort of sending the fiery cross round the neighbourhood in the old times? What old times? Who knows? We pay for our beer and are thankful. And what's the name of the village just below, landlord? "'Kingstone Lyle, sir.' "'Fine plantations you've got here?' "'Yes, sir. The squire's amazing fond of trees and such like.' "'No wonder. He's got some real beauties to be fond of. "'Good day, landlord.' "'Good day, sir, and a pleasant ride to ee.' "'And now, my boys, you whom I want to get for readers, have you had enough? "'Will you give in at once and say you're convinced, and let me begin my story? "'Or will you have more of it? "'Remember?' I've only been over a little bit of the hillside yet. What, you could ride around easily on one of your ponies in an hour. I've only just come down into the vale, by Blowingstone Hill, and if I once begin about the vale, what's to stop me? You'll have to hear all about Wantage, the birthplace of Alfred, and Farringdon, which held out for so long for Charles I. The vale was near Oxford and dreadfully malignant, full of Throgmortons, Pusies and Pies and such like, and their brawny retainers. Did you ever read Thomas Ingoldsby's Legend of Hamilton Tye? If you haven't, you ought to have. Well, Farringdon is where he lived before he went to sea. His real name was Hamden Pye, and the Pyes were the great folk at Farringdon. Then there's Pusey. You've heard of the Pusey Horn, which King Canute gave to the Puseys of that day, and which the gallant old squire, lately gone to his rest, whom the Berkshire freeholders turned out of last Parliament to their eternal disgrace for voting according to his conscience, used to bring out on high days, holidays, and bonfire nights. And the splendid old cross church at Uffington, the Uffingus town, how the whole countryside teems with Saxon names and memories, and the old moated grange at Compton, nestled close under the hillside, where twenty Marianas may have lived, with its bright water-lilies in the moat, and its yew-walk, the cloister-walk, 
and its peerless terraced gardens. There they all are, and twenty things beside, for those who care about them and have eyes. And these are the sorts of things you may find, I believe, every one of you, in any common English country neighbourhood. Will you look for them under your own noses, or will you not? Well, well, I've done what I can to make you, and if you will go gadding over half Europe now, every holidays, I can't help it. I was born and bred a West Country man, thank God, a Wessex man, a citizen of the noblest Saxon kingdom of Wessex, a regular angular Saxon, the very soul of me ad scriptus glebi. There's nothing like the old countryside for me, and no music like the twang of the real old Saxon tongue, as one gets it fresh from the veritable chore in the white horse vale. And I say with Garge Riddler, the old West Country yeoman, Through all the wild old Garge would boast, Commend me to merry old England most, While wolves goes prating, vor and nigh, We swaps at home, my dog and I. Here, at any rate, lived and stopped at home Squire Brown, J.P. for the county of Berks, in a village near the foot of the White Horse Range. And here he dealt out justice and mercy in a rough way, and begat sons and daughters, and hunted the fox, and grumbled at the badness of the roads and the times. And his wife dealt out stockings and calico shirts and smock frocks and comforting drinks to the old folks with the rheumatiz, and good counsel to all and kept the coal and clothes clubs going, for yuletide, when the bands of mummers came round, dressed out in ribbons and coloured paper caps, and stamped round the squire's kitchen, repeating in true sing-song vernacular the legend of St. George and his fight, and the ten-pound doctor who pays his part at healing the saint, a relic, I believe, of the old middle-age mysteries. It was the first dramatic representation which greeted the eyes of little Tom, who was brought down into the kitchen by his nurse to witness it, at the mature age of three years. Tom was the eldest child of his parents, and from his earliest babyhood exhibited the family characteristics in great strength. He was a hearty strong boy from the first, given to fighting with and escaping from his nurse, and fraternising with all the village boys, with whom he made expeditions all round the neighbourhood. And here, in the quiet old-fashioned country village, under the shadow of the everlasting hills, Tom Brown was reared, and never left it till he went first to school, when nearly eight years of age. For in those days change of air twice a year was not thought absolutely necessary for the health of all Her Majesty's leeches. I have been credibly informed, and am inclined to believe, that the various boards of directors of railway companies, those gigantic jobbers and bribers, while quarrelling about everything else, agreed together some ten years back to buy up the learned profession of medicine, body and soul. To this end they set apart several millions of money, which they continually distribute judiciously among the doctors, stipulating only this one thing, that they shall prescribe change of air to every patient who can pay, or borrow money to pay, a railway fare, and see their prescription carried out. If it be not for this, why is it that none of us can be well at home for a year together? It wasn't so twenty years ago, not a bit of it. The Browns didn't go out of the country once in five years. A visit to Reading or Abingdon twice a year, at assizes or quarter sessions, which the squire made on his horse with a pair of saddlebags containing his wardrobe, a stay of a day or two at some country neighbours, 
or an expedition to a county ball or the yeomanry review made up the sum of the brown's locomotion in most years. A stray brown from some distant county dropped in every now and then, or from Oxford, on grave nag, an old don, contemporary of the squire, and were looked upon by the brown household and the villagers with the same sort of feeling with which we now regard a man who has crossed the rocky mountains, or launched a boat on the great lake in central Africa. The White Horse Vale, remember, was traversed by no great road. Nothing but country parish roads, and these very bad. Only one coach ran there, and this one only from Wantage to London, so that the western part of the Vale was without regular means of moving on, and certainly didn't seem to want them. There was the canal, by the way, which supplied the countryside with coal, and up and down which continually went the long barges, with the big black men lounging by the side of the horses along the towing-path, and the women in bright-coloured handkerchiefs standing in the sterns, steering. Standing, I say, but you could never see whether they were standing or sitting, all but their heads and shoulders being out of sight in the cosy little cabins which occupied some eight feet of the stern, and which Tom Brown pictured to himself as the most desirable of residences. His nurse told him that these good-natured-looking women were in the constant habit of enticing children into the barges, and taking them up to London and selling them, which Tom wouldn't believe, and which made him resolve as soon as possible to accept the off-proffered invitation of these sirens to young master to come in and have a ride. But as yet the nurse was too much for Tom. Yet why should I, after all, abuse the gadabout propensities of my countrymen? We are a vagabond nation now, that's certain, for better, for worse. I am a vagabond. I have been away from home no less than five distinct times in the last year. The Queen sets us the example. We are moving on from top to bottom. Little dirty Jack, who abides in Clement's Inn Gateway, and blacks my boots for a penny, takes his month's hop-picking every year as a matter of course. Why shouldn't he? I'm delighted at it. I love vagabonds only I prefer poor to rich ones. Couriers and ladies' maids, imperials and travelling carriages, are an abomination unto me. I cannot away with them. But for dirty Jack, and every good fellow who, in the words of the capital French song, moves about, comme le limaçon, portant tout son bagage, ses meubles, sa maison, on his own back, why, good luck to them, and many a merry roadside adventure, and steaming supper in the chimney corners of roadside inns, Swiss chalets, Hottentot kraals, or wherever else they like to go. So, having succeeded in contradicting myself in my first chapter, which gives me great hopes that you will all go on and think me a good fellow notwithstanding my crotchets, I shall here shut up for the present, and consider my ways, having resolved to sar it out, as we say in the Vale, olus bolus, just as it comes, and then you'll probably get the truth out of me. End of part one, chapter one.